Welcome to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp. I'm Ryan John. I'm Brendan Draper. And I'm Joe Santarpia. And today we're going to be talking about the prickly topic of tuning wedges. Um, Duh. Spiky topic. I don't enjoy this. Spiky. Yeah, pokey. Especially for engineers starting out, this is kind of, I don't know, this is where you run into your first real problems, maybe. Look, man, I've been engineering for 15, 20 years or something like that. I still get a little nervous when I'm ringing out wedges, especially if the artists and all that are there while I'm doing it. Yeah. I I hate doing it when they're there. I'd I'd much rather get it done before they all show up or at least get it done, you know, roughly before they all show up. And then it's just kind of details. Think about from a person who doesn't know anything about sound, like watching someone do it. It probably seems like the most psychotic process, you know, like just... I mean, from someone who knows about sound, it seems psychotic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let me we, blast you know, myself with, 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 with squealing, screaming frequencies. Yeah, strange noise, making strange sounds into the mic. You know, so many just, yeah, just weird. Anyway. I, I, can, I, can, I can picture the faces of so many, like, bar managers who are coming in and setting up their stuff, just staring at me being like, what yeah. the hell is he doing while I'm, like, just... Just standing there going, ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. And it's just like, <laughs> one eyebrow high to the sky. They're just like, whoa. Yeah. They're like, what on what earth are these sounds doing? he's making? And for actually, like, for you know, like a long time, you know? For a while. And, and, now, and now that I've said that I make those noises, I guess I'm going to have to explain why I make those noises later. And that's going to yeah. just be awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh. so so I think I think the the base the base portion of this that uh, uh, your average user needs to be aware of is things like general tonality, right? When, when we do a show, um, every wedge is not going to be the same. You know, you're not going to have 50 of the same wedge. Or, well, 50 would be a pretty insane show, but you know, you're not going to have necessarily 20 of the same wedge. Your side fills might be different types of speakers than your wedges in the front, which might be a different type of speaker than uh, uh, you know, your drum uh, wedge. So there's an awareness that needs to happen here for the differing tonality of these different wedges. And on top of that, just different coverage, too. So what are the things that affect the tonality of a wedge the most? I mean, the the obvious ones to me are like, there's obviously physical size and shape, right? There are some some wedges that are, you know, dual tens and a horn in the middle. There are some wedges that are a single 15 and a horn. And, you know, they sound completely different. You know, starting out driver size, you know, um, wedges typically 10 inch, 12 inch, 15 inch drivers. Um, yeah, they do come in all know, shapes and sizes, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes some of them have two, dri- some of them have two and a tweeter or some of them have a tweeter. Some are full range, you know, uh, so, so what's so the general things, difference between yeah. like, uh, for example, a 10 inch wedge with a horn and, and a 15, like where would you use one versus the other? Okay, so a bigger driver is going to offer some more low-end response. So, you know, if you don't have subs, maybe you'd want to, and you had a limited supply of each, you might want to give a larger driver to your drummer so he can or, or like a bass kick player, drum, yeah, you know, same yeah. thing with a bass player. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or even keyboard player if there's like some, you know, real fat patches yeah. going on. Right, or if, you ha- or if you have a sub for the drummer, maybe put the smaller driver size on top of it, right? Yes, because yeah, it's already taken totally. care of, or the lower. And, and I'll be honest, you know, when you've got yep. a big driver in a in a in a wedge, it's also physically heavy and really big. And in some ways, th- this might sound a little bit silly, but if I have to move it a lot during the during the evening, I'm going to want to make sure it's a smaller driver. 
So most of the downstage ones, yeah. I will take the smaller driver for the most part. And also, uh, giant wedges block the fan's view. So I'd actually rather have a smaller wedge on yeah, the downstage true. edge and use the bigger one somewhere farther upstage, unless it was necessary to use a bigger driver on a downstage edge. Yeah. I, I also typically find that bigger drivers seem to kind of spit wider coverage patterns, and smaller drivers seem to be a little bit more directional. Do you find about the same? I, I don't know if that actually lines up to the numbers, to be honest, but like just in general, I, I kind of view them that way. I think, I feel like maybe nowadays, you know, with with technology they can kind of do whatever you want and as you mentioned in a previous episode you know you can rotate those drivers right, often you know and you have the option to right like yeah. to change their patterns yeah yeah well speaking of dispersion when you're making choices of where the wedges go right or who's who which in, which uh which musician is getting a wedge you're going to take that dispersion into account too right i mean we kind of yeah, covered of this in the last episode but um yeah. you know like if you've got if you've got a guitar player who's going to be walking up and down stage you probably want one that's going to have a wider vertical dispersion so that it covers when he's right up in front of the wedge and he's right. farther back on the stage right but like a wandering know? singer going you right. know left to right on stage you're going to want a wider horizontal coverage right yeah. and you know just where you move in front of that wedge the tone is going to change right like as you get yeah. farther off access from that driver you're going to have less high frequencies usually. Um, and then when you get more in front of it, you're going to have a clearer sonic image. So yeah, that'll, that'll affect where you put them on stage as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And you know, it's super important, especially, I mean, with all live sound in general, and you'll probably hear us talk a lot more about this, but um, you know, gain structure for monitors is absolutely critical. Um, when I say that, I, you know, I'm referring to there's there's multiple points throughout your signal chain, I guess specifically on your console, that you know you can either attenuate or add gain. Um, and having a clean, as in not pushing too much in certain places and pulling too much in others, um, sort of structure of all that um, tends to yield to more transparent and better results. Um, yeah, I get, we'll, yeah, we'll get, we'll get I, more into it. I feel like we it, can go but, super yeah. mathy and detailed into that if we wanted to. But, but the, you know, the, the yeah. gist of it there, though, is that there are many places you can turn up and turn down signal, and there kind of is an optimal way to do it. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll go through this a little bit later when we go into ringing out microphones, but you don't want to be in a place where you're overloading the signal in any part of that whole signal chain. So you don't want your head amp so high that your signal's clipping, and then you have your aux master turned super low in order to get it at the right volume on the wedge. That's not really an appropriate way to do things. So for the most part, right. things like output masters, we want to keep it unity unless we have to move them. Right. And, we'll, and, you know, we'll, yeah. and we'll get more into the workflow and stuff like that. But, and, 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 you know, and I guess ultimately what you're fighting against the most doing monitors potentially is, is what you're trying to alleviate by do, by taking all those steps. Yeah. And, that's yeah, and I mean, I, I guess we have to define feedback really before we can jump into the depth of how to ring out a microphone. It, it's, yeah. it's yeah. basically, what is it? It's not basically, it is when the output of a speaker doesn't even have to be a speaker on stage is going back into the microphone that is then feeding that same speaker. So you create a loop, you know, the sound going into the microphone, out of the speaker, back into the microphone, back into the speaker. And 
typically it's singular frequencies that just ring out and they sound like a like a whistling or 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 a single tone uh most of the time or a yeah, squeal or a, right? or a squeal if it's you know up up there a shriek what yeah. what i've what i've basically found is that if the feedback creeps in really slowly and slowly starts to take off it's typically a speaker that's quite far away from the microphone mm-hmm. whereas if it if it happens very fast it's usually a speaker that's very close so you know if you've yeah. got a if you've got a front of house guy blaming the point. monitor guy if you got a front of house guy going, no, 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 the feedback was his fault. But when you go back and listen to the recording or something like that, you hear that it took like ten seconds for the feedback to start ringing out. No, that was the front of house guy's fault, most likely. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I've been that guy who's going, no, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And then later, yeah, I ended up finding guy. out that it was the front fills, not the main PA, but it was the oh, kick yeah. off the back of the front fills that was like making things ring out. It it happens, man. Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah, I have if you a, don't know. Go ahead, yeah, continue. I was going to say, I have an artist that, that famously gets right in front of the PA uh, a lot. Um, I remember we had this festival gig. You know, typically on a festival, you know, you've got a nice big stage. And then if it's a pop act, you usually have a, a thrust that sticks out of the middle of the stage and goes into the audience, you know, anywhere from 50 to 200 feet. Uh, for some reason on this festival, they put thrusts on the two outside edges of the stage, right in front of the PA. Mm. So the PA was was hung there, and the PA was like the bottom edge of the the rig was only maybe at six feet high, maybe a little bit more than that. Mind you, that's still you know fifteen twenty feet from the audience because the audience is pretty far away. But in order for my artist to get onto the thrust, she had to walk right in front of that, and then walk out onto the thrust. But even then, Mm. she's directly in front of that PA hang. So, you know, even from a front house perspective, I've, I've had to deal with things like feedback or feedback mitigation a lot. It's yeah. Same, same. I, I have a, I have a show I work with where they have a stage in the round out in the audience and there's a catwalk from the, the main stage to that. And the singers it's, it's because it's a dance performance, but the lead singer is out there on a wireless mic, almost 80% of the show. And so, yeah, just dealing with that has been, has been fun. I would yeah, say yeah. that feedback is one of the most significant sources of like anxiety and, uh, you know, just bad juju, like, you know, in your audio career. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. when something's when something's going off and you can't identify it, like that's a pretty it's a tough spot. You know, you, you're you just, know, you're, you, you can leave me in a country where I don't speak the language in a place I don't know without knowing how to get back to like my hotel and I will feel mm-hmm. less stress than if feedback <laughs> starts taking off in the show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it sucks, you know. It's um, it, it can be y- rough. Yeah, you start second guessing everything. Yeah, so yeah, so like, how do how do we fix it? How do we take care of it? Well, this in, process yeah. of in the monitor world, it's a process called ringing out microphones, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I would, yeah. So I mean, what what that's, are that's what, the, what are the basics of ringing out? What, what's the goal and what's the general process in terms of like what you're doing? I I'd say the the general goal is just to have enough level that the artist on stage can hear what they need to hear without feedback happening or without the chance of anything feeding back, no matter where they are standing or where they are moving on stage or what they're doing right. to the, like what sound they're putting into the microphone. So in theory, they can always hear sense? themselves, but we never have this feedback issue, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, what's your, what's your yeah. process, Joe? Yeah. So everyone's a little different and, um, this this is this is going to sound made up, but there this uh, one 
uh, audio engineer back in the day uh, kind of ran me through his his process already and highlighted the up. things that I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, 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 no, nobody nobody gives anyone uh, any advice ever. Um, no, he his name was Cowboy, and Definitely he kind of up. walked me through his <laughs> his workflow um, of how to to ring out a wedge, and it was kind of my like uh, illumination moment. So uh, again, this goes goes to the gain structure thing. Um, you have right. a mic and you have a monitor system. Uh, your mic's coming to a channel. Um, that channel has a preamp gain, and and that's you're going to be working with that and your and your aux sends as far as your main gain structure. Um, you know, uh, send masters at Unity if that wasn't obvious. Um, so what I would do is, uh, you know, stand in front of the stand in front of the speaker and either have someone uh, drive the console for me, or if I'm able to do it right, you know, and, somehow. And, and, uh, and just to jump in for a second, that is a term we use a lot. We say. Would you like to drive? drive. Yeah. And that means yeah. that someone's going to run the console because this is a two-person process. Someone has to be with the microphone in front of the wedge. Yeah. And first of all, yeah, because right. they need to place it there and need to also be able to call out what's happening from the speaker. Right, right. I mean, we got, we, you know, we got iPads now and that's that's really awesome when you have that um, at your disposal. But if not, then it's going to be someone else driving for right. you. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, so I guess the key point was for him, he, you know, he, he explained to me, cowboy, uh, that he would start with his (laughs) preamp gain, uh, all the way down and he'd start with his, uh, aux send. So if you're, if you're a post fader send, if you're doing post fader sends, everything's at unity, the preamp is all the way down and yeah, you start start bringing up your, right. So you bring up, you start with your send, start bringing up your aux send Mm -hmm. and you know, if at zero, if when you're, when your send is at zero, not zero is in all the way down minus whatever, like, ze- unity. like zero point unity gain. Um, and it's still not loud enough. Then start working on your head amp gain. And, you know, I, and through using that technique and just overall operating with a lower head amp gain workflow when doing monitors, I found for me was a, was a game changer, uh, super helpful, you know, um, to kind of, you know, that's, get a lot of gain before feedback so uh, so when feedback you know, does happen what do you do well you know they say they say it, it potentially will start on the lower frequencies first you know i, I work that high pass filter um first and you of do all, that on the microphone channel in, itself or on the on the microphone okay. channel yeah uh, well uh, on, on the mic channel itself you know i don't want to choke you know a kick drum from coming through you know i don't want i don't want to rip all the low end out of yeah, the box yeah i guess just i on, guess we do need to the, remember that other instruments will eventually be coming through this thing even though right now you're checking mm-hmm. out a vocal mic exactly and sorry and, and important to mention too you know e- output eq's flat channel flat at this point still we start and, we start with working the the send and then the preamp i've got well, a another clarifying question for folks like are you what? Are you making sounds into the mic while you're bringing up the gain? Are you just absolutely listening to it? Like, yeah, yeah. What are good you doing? Point, with good it? point. Talk, yeah. Talking into it, uh, making all, all sorts of, of those strange sounds um, that Ryan <laughs> mentioned. You know, I think <laughs> the, the, what those sounds are are you know you're exploring. Uh, frequencies throughout exactly, the spectrum yeah. that might be do a little bit too hot or do, you know doing something a little crazy and then you can identify those and pull them out when you get to a point that the mic you know feeds back use an rta or your ear if you're privy enough and uh you know start pulling frequencies cowboys workflow he said on the channel okay. you know that that could b- kind of be argued I, I know brendan and i kind of have differing you know uh 
schools of thought there, but you know, you could also, you could also start there on your graph, but, um, you know, for me, I find that if I'm starting with a vocal and so, so I don't know. So in, ter- that's, that's in terms just, of what you're doing into do. the microphone, basically, you, you, you talk a little bit, right? And you hear your voice coming back. And as you hear it coming back, mm-hmm. you can, you can kind of hear things that feel a little bit like they're poking out or a little bit wrong. Yeah. And when you start to hear that, what I try to do is try to excite that a little bit more on purpose. So if mm-hmm. I hear something in kind of a low mid, I might start going ooh, ooh, to try yeah. and find where that note is. And I might move that note up or down. And then you might find a spot where as soon as you hit it, that starts ringing a bunch. Mm-hmm. Right. And exactly. that obviously becomes the frequency that you're going to start tailoring or, or pulling in order to flatten out the response there a little bit so that it doesn't take out take off anymore exactly and and you know usually when you hear people doing the same thing in the high end usually it's things like uh you know people making s sounds or or clicking sounds like that kind of thing and that's usually to hear what's going on in the high end and hear right you know try and make something take off up there yeah and and at, at this at this point too like where your head is in relationship to the microphone makes a difference too right yeah 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 Move it around, you know, move it around, move different distances from your mouth, you know. And then when you're really confident, you might even try to cup it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, so if you know your microphone is going to sit on a stand the whole time and you know the artist is not going to take it off, you can just put it on that stand when you work on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and you can leave it there because that's the, that's the position you need to optimize for. So while it's there... Mm-hmm. You can try and emulate all the things your singer might do. So maybe they'll move a little bit off to a side. Maybe they'll move a little bit to the other side. Maybe they'll back up a little bit. Maybe they're wearing a cowboy hat. And if they're wearing a cowboy hat, that affects the sound of the microphone because Mm -hmm. their voice is bouncing off of it. And also the wedge is bouncing off the brim of that hat and it does affect things. So sometimes if you know you've got an artist who's going to come out with a hat, when you walk up to that microphone, you, you... yeah, you could put a hat on or just hold your hand up at your forehead as if, you know, it's it's a, the brim of a hat. It does help oh because my God, it will change the way things happen. It's like a salute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're saluting the barman. It's, it's a live sound boot camp salute. <laughs> <laughs> salute, to, salute to cowboy. <laughs> salute to cowboy. Yeah. Thank you, cowboy. Thank so, you, so, cowboy. So, Brendan, y- your workflow is a little bit different. Just a little it's, bit. It's Tell a, me how you do it. It's a yeah. It's 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 just a little bit different. I mean, I yeah. I bring the gain up. I I, I set all my aux masters and my channel faders at zero. Um, I start at Unity. Yeah, at Unity. Sorry, and I start bringing the gain up on the channel. Um, this is with your usually, send at Unity or your send at minus infinity. Um, I send at Unity. Oh, okay. And then I start bringing the gain up on the channel. And then once I start hearing some feedback happening, I will do, I do a little EQ on the, uh, the aux master channel, like a parametric EQ. Mm-hmm. And I'll just notch out like the really offensive frequencies. I don't want to hack it up because like we said, other instruments are coming through. But I don't know. I just, I don't know. It, it is going to affect the other instruments coming through. But I think if you don't do too much there, but just like the really bad ones that start to pop up first, and then I move back to my channel EQ. Well, well, here's, here's the still, other thing. Here's yeah. the other thing we need to jump in on, though. What we're doing mm-hmm. here is optimizing the relationship between this wedge and this microphone, right? Yeah. And 
ultimately yep. the reason we're doing that is because this is probably the microphone closest to this wedge, which means this microphone is most likely to have feedback issues, right? Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So other instruments, guitars, bass, keys, all sorts of other stuff do need to come through this wedge, but if you had to hack up the wedge a little bit to make this vocal clear in it, it's acceptable because you have mm -hmm. achieved the best uh, gain before feedback you can for this microphone in this wedge. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, vo vocals tend to be the most problematic things and the, also the most important things. So to kind of base it a little bit off of the vocal is uh, acceptable. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, yeah. And I guess maybe maybe something to kind of back up on and, and just touch and clarify, you know, when we're, at least for me, when I'm ringing out that wedge, I'm starting with the wedge that it's, that uh, that belongs to the person who the mic belongs to. Right, because ultimately you know, the level not, would be the I'm most in out, that wedge. Exactly. I You know, typically. So that's, yeah. No, oh, it's a good point. That's a good point. Continue. Um, <laughs> I, f I feel like we totally interrupted you there, Brendan. Oh, no. I, I mean, I was, I was pretty much at the end. Um, yeah, I just bounced back to the channel EQ, notch out whatever needs to be notched out there. Of course, I, I usually have a high pass up to, you know, to take out any low rumble or anything like that that can get in there. Um, but then if there's more problems, if there is a problem during the show, then I have that graphic EQ to take out frequencies, right? Yeah. Or... Yeah. So you know, yeah. you know, it's or just as a back, you know, the third line of defense. You know, what's interesting is that I feel like mm. both of you guys do this in a unconventional manner. Unconventional in that I don't think that most engineers put the send at Unity and then trim up the gain. I feel like your average engineer, what they'll do is the the aux master is up at Unity, and you know maybe the faders at Unity. But the send itself is down all the way, minus infinity, right? And then they gain up the channel mm -hmm. until they're in a spot where they have a healthy amount of channel, uh, a healthy amount of signal, rather. Mm -hmm. And once they've got this healthy amount of yeah. signal, then they start turning up the send. Um, and once, you know, as they turn up the send, obviously the level goes up in the wedge and, and you know, you go from there. Whereas what you guys had suggested was that the send is already at Unity and you're using your gain to get that level. Uh, and I understand, though, because you probably will end up with generally a lower gain uh, overall there. But the more common workflow is to gain up the channel and then turn up your send. And if you're doing this on an analog desk, it's actually quite easy, right? Because your send knob, it's a pretty linear knob. You just turn it, and as it goes up, it goes up. If you're doing this on any desk where right. you do sends on faders... Uh, faders aren't mm -hmm. linear. They're logarithmic, right? So the, the bottom inch of movement is, I don't know, 60, 70 dB. And then the inch above that is 20, 30 dB. The inch above that is 10 or less. The inch above that is, you know, 5. So in the bottom end of your fader movement, you're making huge movements. So if you've gained up your channel to, you know, a healthy level per se and you start pushing that up, you're making 40, 50, 60 dBs of move immediately. So I could see how right. your workflow actually uh, kind of reduces that issue, you know, because you've got a linear gain pot. So you're turning it up by one dB at a time mm -hmm. as you're going up. Um, whereas, you know, mm -hmm. sends on faders, you, yeah, that's your faders are, you know, moving quite significantly at the start of this process right it's similar to my workflow for f run a house because i want to have my i want to have my channel fader close to unity or at unity so that my moves are subtle yeah you know 
and I don't shoot up like 20 dB just with like a small move. You know, it, it's it's interesting because I've got a couple different workflows for for how I do this, and the workflow A depends on the time, and B depends on um, what I'm sending to. If I'm sending to we- uh, wedges, I do something completely differently than if I'm sending to ears, and if I have lots of time, mm-hmm. I do something completely differently. So I, I do I do the the usual guy's mm-hmm. method of you know uh, gain it up, uh, but I actually don't gain up that hot. I usually gain up so I'm sitting in you know the unity or minus six with peaks, and then I start sending. And I'll only bring it up mm-hmm. more than that if I need to bring it up more than that. So maybe that's kind of what saves me mm-hmm. you keep, because keep then my low. fader ends up pretty high, mm-hmm. you know. All right, so so yeah, the other thing I do that's a, I guess a little bit different than you guys is I pre-EQ the channel uh, to the things that I feel like I will typically find in that channel. For example, a vocal, I'll high pass pretty heftily, probably like 120 to 200, depending. Yeah, uh, and I'll take out some of the lows there because typically I end up with a pretty chunky or woofy sounding wedge if I leave all that in uh, yeah. because of the proximity effect of a vocal mic. So Definitely. if the singer's right on that mic, there's going to be heaps of low end. So I try to take that stuff out before I even really bring this up. Um, and then once I bring it up, usually I don't have to deal with anything in the low end for feedback. But once feedback starts happening, um, I do the same as, as you had suggested, Brendan, where I start taking it out of the aux's master itself. And on there, I use a parametric first because I can get very, very specific. I mean, this, this day and age, we have all these apps where we can look at exactly the frequency that's coming back. Yeah. Uh, so download, if it says Download 2. an RTA 7, if you don't know the frequencies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, an RTA will, will do it. Uh, and that'll work really well if you've got a graphic EQ because RTAs are typically 31 band, right? But if you can get something like an, uh, an RTA that, either an RTA that goes specifically to the frequency or an FFT, which is what I use, uh, there's an app called FFT, and it'll tell you exactly the peak, peaking frequency. It'll, it'll mark it. It'll show you the number and everything. So if 2.7 takes off, I'm going to set my parametric to 2.7 and take it down. Whereas if I do it on a graphic, I've got to take out 2.5 and 3. Right. And it's just not necessary to take out that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll kind of tailor it that way. And then once I've got it in a place that I feel is good, I might put a graphic on it as well and just leave it there because once the show starts it'll be quicker for me to grab a, uh, a a fader on a graphic EQ than it will be for me to move parametrics around. Does that make sense? Yeah, matter mm-hmm. of speed. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the normal way I do it. And then there's the insane way I do it. And the insane way I do it, I do when I have a lot of time. And I'll set up a smart rig. And smart is an application that allows you to view a transfer function, which is basically, it can view the difference between what's going into something and what's coming back out. And, and compare them. And compare them, right? And it'll show you a, a nice graph of that difference. So I don't know who told me this, but I remember trying it for the first time at this weird venue in Brooklyn called the Warsaw Tavern. And monitor position is like up on like this weird balcony. You have to go down a ladder to get down <laughs> to the stage. And I've it's been one to the, of the, Warsaw, the Polish place. Yeah, the Polish place. And they have the, yeah, the best pierogies cool. ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally. was uh, I was a one there for a while. Um, 
No way. Huh. Yeah, man. I uh, we, but I don't know how I didn't know that. So do do you remember though that the monitor position's like up on this weird thing? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you climb a ladder maybe to get yeah, to it. Yeah, you had to climb a ladder to get up yeah. to it. So if you have to carry anything, it's kind of hard to climb a ladder, you know. Oof. You're yeah. taking cables up and down and like I th- if I'm not mistaken, they even kept the stands and cables up there. So it was it was a pain. But I would show up super early before the artist would be there because I hate doing any sort of ringing out when the artist is there. And since I was the only one there at the time, it, it wasn't easy to, to ha- I didn't get to have someone drive. I would have to walk down, make it ring out, walk up, change something, walk back down, make it ring out, walk back up and change something. It was an analog desk. Getting a workout. It was a pain in the ass, man. So I decided, or somebody had told me to try this. I don't actually remember, but I'm just going to pretend that I figured this one out. I decided that if I use smart, I can then have the application tell me what the mic is picking up from the wedge and then basically optimize the wedge. So what I would do is I'd send pink noise into the wedge and the wedge would be spitting it out, right? And the wedge itself, it's got some kind of, you know, EQ curve to it, right? There's just a certain Uh tonality to every box. And then the mic itself has its own EQ curve to it too, right? And you've seen these these patterns before, the frequency response patterns, or graphs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... If I sent pink noise into it and then took that microphone at its position on the stand where a singer is supposed to be that day and route that into smart, then it can compare what pink noise should look like, which is dead flat, to what's actually coming back in through that microphone, right? And it'll show me some crazy Uh curve, right? uh And at that point, I'm taking into account both the EQ-ish curve of the speaker itself and then the frequency response of the microphone. And... Ultimately, the best way to eliminate feedback is to make sure that no frequencies are actually poking out in the relationship between the speaker and the microphone. So if you look at this crazy curve right. and you go, oh, that's poking out, that's poking out, that's poking out, you can put an EQ on it and, you know, parametric or whatever. I think at, the, at that venue, they didn't even have parametric. So I took the graph and kind of optimized it so it's pretty flat. And then at that point, I'd go back mm-hmm. downstairs and I'd walk in front of the mic and I'd talk into it. And I'd be like, okay, this doesn't sound awful, but it but it works. I'd go back upstairs, turn it up a bit more, talk in it, go back upstairs, turn it up more, talk into it. And theoretically, with nothing else around the microphone, I've optimized it for gain before feedback, right? But the moment you're actually right, physically right. in front of it and talking into it, you've now become this extra thing that's there. And, you know, sound is now mm-hmm. reflecting off of you and back into the microphone. And you're kind of changing the response of the mic itself. So the moment you pick it up and start, you know, doing anything else with it, you kind of need to treat it exactly like you guys were treating it earlier. You know, you hold it and you get it to ring out and, you know, you kind of EQ from there. But that weird method of using smart got me something like 70, 80% of the way there, like quickly without actually having to have anyone else help me. And I mean, I did it out of necessity because we didn't really have the ability to, but I've done it since then in venues that I work in and I've gotten some yeah. really good results. You know, it's when you, when you take, when you take the measurement, sorry, where did you say you had the it mic? It would be on the stand, like where the singer at, should be, if you will. Yeah. But so not, not like at the wedge, pointed at not the mic at the necessarily. The I mean, if you huh, think about it, right interesting. on the stand did that, where it normally would be, yeah. the part of the polar pattern that's picking yeah, up the wedge yeah. is not what's I, in front I, of it. I would you know, so, imagine that sorry, yielding a crazy curve. Like were you, were you hacking it to yeah, bits? Yeah, you get at that some point really or? wacky. 
Not necessarily. I mean, it's, it just, the curve was stranger than you'd expect it to be, uh-huh. but you weren't necessarily hacking it to bits. But it did make very clear which parts were really standing out. Mm-hmm. You know, you, gotcha. could, you could pinpoint the frequencies that just really were poking. Uh-huh. And you okay. didn't need to make it razor flat. You just needed to get rid of the big pokes. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, Interesting. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's cool. I, uh, it's I've a weird it. workflow. Yeah. Yeah, I think I might try yeah, that out. It seemed to work. In my garage. Yeah, I would love here in quarantine, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, you know, you might as well. And then, you know, the other thing that you guys had kind of mentioned is if you know your singer's going to cup the mic, cup the mic when you're checking your wedges. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe, maybe optimize it a bunch first that you know you're in a good spot, then cup it. If yeah. you know your singer is going to like kind of just hang the mic down and end up pointing it at the wedge, yeah, then do that too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, try try to mimic them in general when you're checking mm-hmm. it. You know, if you know it's a quiet singer, don't like scream into the mic because you're probably not going to get it to sound the way it needs to sound for someone who whispers. You know, right? And and if you don't know the singer, do all of these things. <laughs> yeah, you know, because it's the only way to make sure you're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, I guess another thing I, I do, which is maybe weird, I don't know, you guys tell me if this is weird, I, I kind of open my mouth really wide and almost like stick the mi- mouth, mic Absolutely. in my mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, definitely. Start, that. It, it, it'll literally start to reflect off of the inside of your mouth and other yeah. frequencies will go off. Uh, uh, another engineer that I worked with for a long time, Ross Harris, he, he, would, he would do a little like, like um, tongue uh, click and, and then open his mouth. It was like a little... And then he would open his mouth and kind of like approach the mic from a few inches away. Well, um, th- that is that would an, kind of yeah, and th- and that's another good point is that if you're kind of only doing these things, you're not necessarily giving the mic something to start making feedback off Just, of. So you do yeah. need to create some sound in order for it to, to start to kind of start to take off. The thing is, yeah. don't be afraid of this. Just be okay with it but all the moves you make make them slowly make them smoothly so if you're gonna point the mic at the wedge directly because you think an artist might do it kind of point it oh like straight out from you and then slowly move it down until it's pointing at the wedge and as it starts to take Mm -hmm. off stop and you know adjust that frequency you shouldn't ever need to blast yourself with feedback in order to address feedback right and if you do have a band on stage and you are um, maybe digging around trying to find something going off, you know, communicate with them, advise them, tell them to plug tell, their yeah, ears, exactly. you know, if you think something has mm-hmm. a, a potential of going off. Yeah, I mean, t- typically I tell them or ask them, you know, uh, ask them to leave if they can, you know, have you guys eaten? Do you guys want to yeah. go eat? You know, Ideally. That, you know, that kind of thing or whatever, whatever it is you can do because they need to keep their ears for the night. And so do you as an engineer. So, you know, you don't want to be blasting yourself. You don't want to be blasting them. And yeah. I know I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but to me, the trust between an engineer and an artist is one of the biggest things you need to uh, kind of create. And if you're there mm-hmm. and making a bunch of feedback, whether or not you know what you're doing, it's pretty easy for people to assume that you don't because you're making feedback. Yes. So it is best if they're yeah, not perception. there when you're going through this stuff. So if you can give them a way to just trust you by saying, you know, give me give me 15 minutes, you guys just go hang out in the green room for a minute and and I'll be back with you and when when I'm when when you come back, we'll be all ready to go and start making noise. Um, you know, that's they'll feel better about it than them standing there and getting blasted with noise. Even even if they even if you say give them give, give me 15 minutes, if they decide to sit on the corner of the stage, ask them to to not do that because they won't enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're going to get blasted yeah. with feedback. They don't want that. No one wants that. 
Yeah, it's there's nothing like the the you know the surge of anger that occurs when you know there's some five k ring that just rips you. You know, yeah, it's uh, so it's something else. So here's here's my last question. Oh man, annoyingly, I've got two last questions. One of them is, <laughs> do you ring out front of house as well with a vocal mic? We'll keep this Absolutely. one short. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, definitely. I've got thrusts all the time. So I know my singer is going to walk out on him. So I know she'll be in front of the PA. I have to ring it out at least a little bit. And I usually do it on a vocal group so that I don't affect the rest of the mix. So that only the vocal gets affected by that. And often I even turn it off until she goes out and then I turn it on. Mm. Um, Uh, Mac is an an extremely quiet singer and we often have extremely loud crowds and this is something I struggle with daily so there is a significant portion after the band is done sound checking that me and the monitor guy will go through both the monitors and front of house and try to get that vocal as as bulletproof as possible makes sense man makes sense yep and and then I guess my last question is how do you learn frequencies? You know, cuz I I stand in front of a wedge now and if it rings out I go, yeah, yeah, that's 25. Yeah, that's uh, you know, 315. Yeah, that's 5. You know, I I've I've done it for long enough I kind of know. But h- how yeah. does someone who doesn't know learn this? There's like YouTube tutorials and stuff where they'll like play a frequency and then afterward tell you what it is. I mean, using an RTA and just ringing out wedges after a couple of years, you'll start to kind of figure out what's where after hearing it and seeing it go off on the it, RTA. Or, or yeah, I would second that. Seeing it on the RTA and hearing it kind of solidifies it in your mind over time. Yeah. A long time ago, somebody told me to break the spectrum in half. Um, every time. So if I hear a tone, I go, is it above or below 1K? Okay, it's below, ab- above that. Ah. Okay. Then I go, is it above or below 5K? Interesting. And then if it's above that, you know, there's only a couple bands up there. If it's below that, there's only a couple bands there. Yeah. And then same, if it's below 1K, is it above or below 500? There's only a couple bands there and there's only a couple bands there. So it's like, if you learn 500, 1K, and 5K, mm-hmm. you can get through the rest. Right. Because sense, you know yeah. it's going to be, like, if it's above 5K, but it's close to it, maybe it's a 7K fader, or maybe it's a 6.3, you know? Yeah. It's, it gives you a, a, it's, it's, a zone it to start fishing around or whatnot. Totally. Yeah. And then, you know, I totally line up with both your thoughts there, is that just over time, you will learn this. But I do feel pretty strongly that if you learn those couple, it'll make the whole process easier for you. Yeah, if you don't got to stare at an RTA, it's one less thing, you know, you got to worry about. Well, you know, during a show, if something chirps and goes mm-hmm. off, you don't get an RTA to find it. Right. You can't fish around. Exactly. You know, exactly. You, you don't really get to fish around. So you got to go, uh, was it above one? Yeah. Okay. It was. Was it above five? Yeah, it was. Okay, cool. I only have three things there that I can pull. Right. Y- if you want, pull them all and then slowly <laughs> slide them back in. Because at least then you'll save the day immediately. You right. know what I mean? True. Yeah. Man, I feel like we could go on for like weeks about this topic, but I, I I don't think that there's a huge benefit in going too far deeper than this. So maybe we should stop here and then keep it for the next episode yeah. where we talk about building a monitor mix. Great. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you know, Subscribe, like, uh, comment, all those things. And uh, we appreciate you being here. We'll catch you on the next episode. See y'all. See y'all.